0: Picture this, if you will. A 58-year-old male with a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia follows up with you in clinic for a primary care visit after being seen in the emergency department for epigastric pain. The emergency physician ordered a CT scan, of course, which failed to identify the cause of the abdominal pain. But his symptoms are fairly typical of gastroesophageal reflux, and you start him on a trial of a proton pump inhibitor. You note that the radiologist commented that the patient has marked excess of visceral fat, And when you check the chart, you realize that your patient has gained about 10 pounds since last year and is now at a body mass index of 35.5 kilograms per meter squared. When you ask to measure your patient's waist, he becomes visibly offended. What, are you trying to get me fitted for a fat guy shirt? He exclaims. Look, it's hard to keep the weight off when you're getting older. Anyway, what's with all you doctors getting on my case? I mean, the ER doctor told me the same thing. It's not the first time you've mentioned his weight... But you and your patient have never made cooperative, serious attempts at lifestyle change. How would you address the topic of weight loss with your patient today? And how would you initiate the conversation about management? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from medicine from our bricks to your ears. In the online bricks, this is a part of the cardiovascular section, but as you probably know, this is not only a serious multi-system disease, but also an important public health topic. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Define both obesity and metabolic syndrome, and broadly explain the significance of these diagnoses. 2. List the medical complications of obesity and metabolic syndrome, and explain the pathophysiology by which they occur. 3. List the gold standard diagnostic criteria for both obesity and metabolic syndrome, as well as how these diagnoses are most commonly made. And 4. Outline the management of patients with both obesity and metabolic syndrome. Part 1. What are obesity and metabolic syndrome? If you're a primary care physician, the topics of obesity and metabolic syndrome are conversations you're going to have to bring up a lot. And the reception you'll get from your patients, well, let's just say it won't always be positive. And you can see why. Western society has historically made some pretty awful generalizations and value judgments regarding overweight individuals. And for many, there's a sort of knee-jerk defensiveness if they perceive that you're engaging in fat shaming. But part of why this brick is so important is because as a physician, you not only need to have this uncomfortable conversation, you're morally obligated to. Because obesity and metabolic syndrome are associated with increased mortality. They contribute to several of the most common health problems in the United States, like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and stroke, just to name a few. The key is to be able to have a real conversation that avoids stigma and character judgment, but still focuses on real, clinically proven risks and management strategies. And speaking of not stigmatizing patients... Let's talk about what clinically constitutes both obesity and metabolic syndrome, so that if you address this with patients, you're using evidence-based criteria. Obesity is defined as the accumulation of adipose tissue to the point of impairing health, which is annoyingly difficult to objectively quantify. In practice, it's usually defined by the body mass index, a ratio of body weight to height in kilograms per meter squared. Some of you probably already know this, but A body mass index of between 18.5 and 25 is considered normal. Below that is underweight because, for a variety of reasons, patients in this category tend to have an increased mortality as well. BMI ranging from 25 to 30 is considered overweight, and above 30 is considered obese. By the way, we don't say things like morbidly obese anymore. We now say Class 1, Class 2, and Class 3 obesity for BMIs between 30 and 35, 35 and 40, and over 40, respectively. I know, I know. Some of you may think it's just the PC police at work here. But hey, it's a hard enough topic to talk about as it is. Talk to just five patients about this, and I guarantee you, you too will be trying to find ways to not offend your patients while telling them at the same time that they do need to lose weight. But BMI is a measure of how heavy a patient is for their weight. In reality, it's not weight that's associated with adverse health outcomes, but adipose tissue. And not even all adipose tissue, really, it's mostly visceral fat, the fat that surrounds your organs, primarily in the abdomen and the retroperitoneum. Remember that BMI is a very approximate estimation of adipose tissue, based on the fact that people who are heavy for their height also tend to have more body fat. But because muscle is much more dense than fat, A bodybuilder with a BMI of 35 may be heavy for their height, with only 5% body fat. Or, a bedridden individual with muscle atrophy may have a BMI of 25 and still have an unhealthy amount of adipose tissue. You can also assess body fat by measuring waist circumference and peripheral and central mass, but BMI is the most commonly accepted classification tool in medical practice simply because it's the easiest. Just keep muscle mass in mind before recommending diet and exercise to someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, metabolic syndrome, on the other hand, is the cluster of pathophysiologic changes that occurs when a person has excess visceral fat. As we'll go over later in the episode, high levels of visceral fat leads to things like type 2 diabetes mellitus, dyslipidemias characterized by high triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol, and hypertension by a number of related endocrine abnormalities. Even more than BMI... The diagnosis of metabolic syndrome has many practical uses, the most important of which is recognizing an increased risk for developing cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes mellitus. Now, While the criteria change fairly frequently, according to the American Heart Association's current guidelines, metabolic syndrome is defined as three or more of the following. Increased waist circumference. Increased blood pressure. Increased fasting triglycerides. Decreased fasting serum HDL levels and increased fasting serum glucose. And if a patient takes medications to put one of those values within the normal range, like for blood pressure, dyslipidemia, or diabetes mellitus, well, that counts as fulfilling one of the criteria. Now, as many of you know, obesity is a major public health problem. Obesity is estimated to affect more than one-third of the world's population. And in the United States, it's a whopping 42% of adults. Increasingly, childhood obesity is also a problem— About one-third of children in the United States are now either obese or overweight. 80% of patients whose parents are obese will become obese themselves. So does that mean obesity is genetic? Well, genetics probably have something to do with it. But remember, you inherit more from your parents than just genes. All of us learn lifestyle habits and eating patterns from our parents. And while social mobility is truly the American dream, statistically, that's more the exception than the rule. Socioeconomic advantage dictates a lot, including the available quantity and quality of food, the time and opportunity for physical exercise, and the availability of information and support for a healthy lifestyle. Worldwide, obesity is more prevalent in wealthier countries, but within wealthier countries, obesity definitely has a higher prevalence in demographics with lower socioeconomic status and education. All right, now that we know what we're working with, time for a pop quiz. What five conditions characterize metabolic syndrome? And the answer is obesity, insulin resistance, high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, and hypertension. Part two. How do patients with obesity or metabolic syndrome present? Sounds like a silly question, huh? Because you don't normally think of obesity as something people come to the doctor for more like a personal trainer, or a nutritionist, or the internet. You know, some patients don't see their weight as a medical problem at all, but purely an aesthetic one. Or, conversely, someone may be well aware that they need to lose weight for their health, but need the physician to initiate the conversation before they will begin the lifestyle changes that address it. Unfortunately, the issue of obesity is often addressed only in the setting of associated complications, such as heart disease, stroke, orthopedic problems like back or joint pain, or a new diagnosis of diabetes. On the one hand, it's unfortunate that the obesity wasn't addressed and managed sooner so they could prevent the complications from happening in the first place. But on the other hand, a patient may be more receptive to counseling on obesity in the context of a tangible acute medical complication, because now the consequences seem real rather than abstract. And this can be a strong motivator for a major lifestyle change if only the physician jumps on that opportunity. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of obesity and metabolic syndrome? Obesity results from combined genetic and environmental factors. For example, infants with low birth weight and children who gain weight rapidly in their first 10 years can be identified early as at-risk for obesity. Many people with obesity similarly have an elevated set point of normal body weight that makes it hard to achieve sustainable weight loss. If they restrict calories and burn more through exercise— their basal metabolic rate will slow, as though they're saving up for a period of starvation. Frustratingly, this set point often does have a genetic component. But no matter what the set point, most patients with obesity at least have the potential to improve their condition with diet and exercise. But back to obesity obesity can be classified as primary or secondary based on whether or not it's caused primarily by another condition. Primary obesity is the multifactorial condition that defines most patients with obesity. It's not primarily due to another medical condition. These patients have a complex mix of biopsychosocial factors that contribute to their condition, like diet, exercise, genetics, aging, and other factors. There's even recent evidence that suggests that the individual microbiome of each patient's gut bacteria affects not only nutrient absorption, but also hormonal signaling in a way that contributes to the risk of obesity. In these patients, the end result is a complex endocrine disorder driven by the visceral adipose tissue. Activity of the hormones secreted by adipocytes is often dysregulated, specifically the activity of adiponectin and leptin. Adiponectin, which normally increases energy expenditure, is generally present in lower serum concentrations in patients with obesity. Leptin normally regulates a feeling of satiety And many patients with obesity have leptin resistance, which contributes to increased appetite, even in the context of sufficient food intake. A smaller number of patients have obesity primarily because of another underlying disease. Many times, this is caused by endocrine disorders, including polycystic ovary syndrome, hypothyroidism, growth hormone deficiency, and hypercortisolism. Medications can contribute to obesity as well, like the glucocorticoids, insulin, most antipsychotics, especially olanzapine, and several anti-seizure medications. And finally, a rarer cause of obesity is caused by congenital syndromes, such as Prader-Willi and bardet Beetle syndromes. Now on to the main event, the complications of obesity and why they occur. Now the main cause of increased mortality in patients with obesity and metabolic syndromes is cardiovascular disease, caused primarily by glycemic dysregulation, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. And it's worth repeating again that, especially with regard to cardiovascular disease, it's the visceral adipose tissue, rather than all adipose tissue, that's primarily associated with morbidity and mortality. Remember, junk in the trunk is fine, jelly in the belly, not so much. Glycemic dysregulation occurs primarily via insulin resistance. Quick review. If you had to describe it in one sentence, what is the primary role of insulin? Insulin's role is to promote macronutrient uptake from the bloodstream and macronutrient anabolism and storage inside the cells. Now, if your answer started with glucose, well, just remember, insulin isn't just about glucose, but glycemic dysregulation usually ends up being the most consequential result of insulin resistance. In obesity and metabolic syndrome, cells exhibit decreased responsiveness to the effects of insulin, leading to a reduction in the tissue's glucose uptake and utilization. Frequently, the effects of insulin resistance lead to the sustained elevations in blood glucose that meet diagnostic criteria for type 2 diabetes mellitus. Insulin resistance is initially compensated for by pancreatic beta cell hypertrophy, an actual hypersecretion of insulin. Now, these patients are generally pre-diabetic, with only mildly elevated blood glucose levels, or prolonged spikes in blood sugar after a meal, known as impaired glucose tolerance. But the natural history of the disease generally involves progressive worsening of insulin resistance, to the point where the beta cells can no longer compensate for the degree of insulin resistance, and eventually themselves get damaged by non-enzymatic glycation. At this point, hyperglycemia becomes more sustained and consequential, and this is typically the point at which patients meet criteria for type 2 diabetes mellitus. Insulin resistance is also implicated in dyslipidemia. Remember when I said that insulin isn't all about glucose? Well, insulin also mediates the uptake of fatty acids in the blood and their storage in adipocytes. Therefore, decreased insulin signaling leads to higher levels of free fatty acid and triglycerides in the blood, which can lead to things like steatohepatitis, cirrhosis, and even cancers of the liver and biliary tree, as pathologic quantities of adipose tissue accumulate in the liver. This condition is known as hepatic steatosis. Additionally, Insulin resistance and other factors associated with metabolic syndrome lead to low levels of the HDL lipoprotein responsible for scavenging lipids from the bloodstream, and this combined with elevated serum lipids is known as atherogenic dyslipidemia. Hypertension, which is a multifactorial etiology in this patient's, along with hyperglycemia, damages the endothelial lining of the arteries, allowing excess serum lipids to deposit within the walls of major arteries, forming Atheromas. These atheromas grow and develop as their presence provokes an inflammatory cascade, exacerbated by the pro-inflammatory, pro-thrombotic state inherent to not only hyperglycemia, but also metabolic syndrome independently. The growing atheromas progressively narrow the lumen of the arteries in a process known as atherosclerosis, contributing to numerous types of flow-limiting pathology, like coronary artery disease, stroke, peripheral vascular disease, the list goes on. But in all cases, blood flow is either gradually reduced through growth of the atheroma, or acutely cut off if the atheroma ruptures. When an atheroma ruptures, it forms a clot, and depending on the size of the vessel, the clot can either completely occlude the lumen of the vessel, as is more common in coronary artery disease, or break off and occlude a vessel downstream, as is more common in stroke. So to review... What are the three main mechanisms by which obesity and, more importantly, metabolic syndrome lead to atherosclerosis? And the answer is glycemic dysregulation, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. Many of the other complications of obesity and metabolic syndrome have to do with the fact that adipocytes are actually active endocrine cells that alter the metabolism of hormones, especially the steroid hormones. For that reason, excess adiposity contributes to polycystic ovary syndrome, menstrual irregularity, and sexual dysfunction in both males and females. Maternal hyperglycemia leads to fetal macrosomia, which means your baby don't grow too big, and now you need a C-section. Anyway, other diseases associated with obesity, like endometrial cancer and cancers of the GI tract, don't have a single clear mechanism that explains the increased risk. And with some diseases, the sheer presence of excess body weight is what leads to the increased complications in the first place. Now, the most common of these are orthopedic problems like osteoarthritis, degenerative disc disease of the spine, and weirdly enough, gout. In children, obesity contributes to a growth plate disruption of the hip known as slipped capital femoral epiphysis, or skiffy, to the pediatricians. Respiratory problems are also common complications of increased adiposity. Soft tissue redundancy in the oropharynx leads to obstructive sleep apnea, and both abdominal and thoracic mass make it more difficult to move the diaphragm, leading to what can be functionally classified as a restrictive lung disease. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome in severely obese patients occurs when the work of breathing against the resistance of excess adipose tissue becomes too difficult, and the patient gradually becomes acclimatized to chronic respiratory acidosis, usually limited by renal compensation. Finally, the increased pressure of adipose tissue on the intra-abdominal and pelvic organs also causes problems like gastroesophageal reflux, urinary incontinence, and even a form of glomerular disease called focal segmental glomerulosclerosis that occurs from increased tubular pressures. Unlike cardiovascular disease, these complications can occur simply as a result of the stress of excess body weight and does not necessarily depend on excess adipose tissue being visceral fat. So, final review question. What are the three types of complication that simply result from the mechanical stress of excess body fat? Joint and spine problems, respiratory problems, gastroesophageal reflux, urinary incontinence, and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Part 4. How do we diagnose obesity and metabolic syndrome? While body mass index is the most widely used method to diagnose and classify obesity, the complications of obesity actually result from an excess of adipose tissue, whereas all BMI will tell you is that you're heavy for your height. (laughs) And I highly doubt that Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime was at an increased risk of things like diabetes and sleep apnea just because his body mass index was 32 Other methods used to more accurately assess a patient's degree of adipose excess include waist circumference, waist-to-hip ratio, waist-to-height ratio, and skin fold measurements using calipers, tools used to pinch your flab and measure you in a way that feels most judgmental. But remember, not all fat is equally bad for you. Waist circumference is actually a better measurement of the amount of harmful visceral fat than those mean old calipers, since visceral fat is mainly intra-abdominal. But even that can't tell if a larger-than-average waist is mostly caused by fat around the abdominal organs or just under the skin. Want to know the gold standard? It's actually the measurement of visceral fat at the L4-L5 level, either by abdominal CT or magnetic resonance imaging. Never heard of it before? I don't blame you. Nobody gets put through an MRI just so a doctor can tell them exactly how obese they are. So, for all intents and purposes, the body mass index coupled with your subjective assessment of your patient's body composition is generally enough to start providing guidance to the patients that you believe are at risk. Just a review before we move on. What is the gold standard method of diagnosing obesity? And what is the most common? The gold standard is a measurement of visceral fat at the L4-L5 level by CT or MRI of the abdomen and pelvis. But the most common method by far, is the body mass index. If the BMI is greater than or equal to 30 milligram, sorry 30 kilograms per meter squared, that's considered diagnostic of obesity. Now, metabolic syndrome is much more closely associated with the patient's risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality than obesity is, at least defined by the BMI. But that's hardly surprising, given that metabolic syndrome, in its definition, includes both physical measurements and laboratory assessments of metabolism. We went over this earlier in this episode, so let's review this again. According to the American Heart Association, the five criteria for metabolic syndrome are increased waist circumference, namely greater than 40 inches in males or greater than 35 inches in females, Increased blood pressure, namely a systolic blood pressure greater than 130 millimeters mercury, diastolic blood pressure greater than 80 millimeters mercury, or if the patient requires antihypertensive medications. Elevated serum triglycerides, namely a fasting value greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter. Decreased HDL cholesterol, meaning less than 40 milligrams per deciliter in males and less than 50 milligrams per deciliter in females and fasting plasma glucose, meaning greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter. A patient needs to meet three of those five criteria in order to be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, and if they need medication for hypertension, dyslipidemia, or diabetes, that counts as meeting the criterion. Part 5. How do we manage obesity and metabolic syndrome? So let's get to the heart of it. Now that you know the potential complications of obesity and metabolic syndrome— well, what are you going to do about it? Well, as you've probably guessed, lifestyle modifications like diet and exercise are the mainstay of treatment, diet being the more important of the two. Now, there are a lot of theories on specific diets, but the most evidence-based approach is nothing more than simply reducing caloric intake. While calorie restriction and increased exercise should be recommended even to people classified as overweight, for patients with obesity, the recommended caloric intake is reduced to 800 to 1200 kilocals per day. And that's about half the normal caloric intake. Sounds hard to maintain? You better believe it is. And maintaining the diet is key. Remember, calorie restriction slows the metabolism. So it can be worse to bounce back and forth between calorie restriction and rebound overeating than no dietary intervention at all. So depending on your assessment of the patient's ability to stick to a diet, you might actually recommend a more modest goal initially, like reducing the initial intake by 500 kilocalories per day. Which is more sustainable for many patients. Now, Regarding the more specific diets, some diets such as the Mediterranean diet and a low-fat, low-carb diet may be able to achieve reductions in weight and cardiovascular complications even without the recommended aggressive calorie restriction. Other diets such as the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting have mixed evidence. It doesn't mean that they won't work for your patient, but you need to be monitoring for clinical efficacy. Now, the recommendation for exercise is 30 minutes or more, 5-7 to days per week, to promote weight loss and overall cardiovascular health. And remember, for both diet and exercise, the best regimen is the one a patient can stick to reliably and maintain as an ongoing lifestyle change. Now, for those who are unable to meet weight loss goals with diet and exercise alone, or for those who are suffering from severe complications of obesity, there are some options for pharmacotherapy, Glucagon-like peptide-1, or GLP-1 agonists like semaglutide, are used for glycemic control in type 2 diabetes mellitus. They work primarily by increasing pancreatic insulin secretion, which is counterintuitive because, if you recall, insulin itself causes weight gain. The tendency towards weight loss is thought to occur as a result of both appetite suppression and the mild nausea it causes. Now, a number of drugs for diabetes mellitus also promote weight loss like the first-line drug metformin, and if the patient also has overt diabetes mellitus, they should definitely be prescribed metformin. But the GLP-1 agonists are kind of unique in that they do cause effective weight loss even in patients without diabetes. Now moving on, Orlistat is a medication that inhibits pancreatic lipase, basically blocking the digestion of dietary fats so they pass through your GI tract without being absorbed. Maybe some of you see the problem with that. Most obviously that it'll predispose you to greasy, oily, stinky stools if you don't follow the directions and ingest high-fat meals. (laughs) And spoiler alert, the human anus isn't typically as good at holding in oil as it is feces or even water. Of greater physiologic consequence, though, rather than purely social, the presence of large globules of oil remaining in your digestive tract is that fat-soluble vitamins also tend to get trapped inside those globules passing through into the stool instead of getting absorbed. Now, phentermine is an amphetamine-like drug that increases catabolic activity and suppresses appetite. Now, full disclosure, this drug is FDA-approved in combination with the anti-seizure drug topiramate, but I definitely have an opinion on this one. For starters, it's not the first sympathomimetic that's been popular for weight loss. Amphetamines were historically prescribed, like the ones that made Jared Leto's mom have psychotic symptoms in Requiem for a Dream, or ephedra, which is now banned by the FDA after a bunch of people died after taking it. Basically, FDA approved or not, if you're going to use phentermine, you have to be careful to monitor for all of those side effects that you expect from all the sympathomimetic drugs, like tachyarrhythmias, insomnia, psychiatric symptoms, the list goes on. And finally... Hydrogels were recently FDA approved for weight loss and the mechanism is actually pretty simple. It's an expanding gel that makes you feel full by literally filling up your stomach. But it isn't absorbed by the intestines, so it has no calories. It apparently does show promise as a weight loss aid, but you have to make sure to drink tons of water because in order for the hydrogel granules to fill up your stomach, it has to absorb a ton of water. And the last option for patients for whom diet, exercise, and pharmacotherapy don't actually work, is bariatric or weight loss surgery. This may be indicated in patients who have either class 3 obesity or less severe obesity that's causing one of the many obesity-related medical conditions. Now, the indications and the efficacy vary somewhat, but surgical interventions generally work by either restricting stomach capacity, altering GI hormone signaling, or limiting absorption of nutrients. Or some combination of the three. Restrictive procedures include the endoscopically placed intragastric balloons and the laparoscopically placed gastric band, both of which decrease the space available for the stomach to fill. These restrictive procedures are reversible, but they are also significantly less likely to achieve sustained weight loss. Sleeve gastrectomy involves stapling the fundus of the stomach closed so that food passes through a small tubular region of the stomach. And while it seems like it'd be purely restrictive, it actually does induce substantial changes to hormonal signaling that increases satiety and improves glycemic control. Finally, there are a number of procedures that work primarily by malabsorption that involve preventing digestion and preventing food from passing through portions of the small intestine. The most well-known of these is the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, in which food passes through the esophagus and cardia of the stomach, but is surgically routed straight into the middle of the jejunum, bypassing the stomach, duodenum, and a large part of the jejunum itself. And this has profound effects on the restriction of food intake, hormone signaling, digestion, and absorption. It's also a very technically difficult procedure, meaning that fewer surgeons can perform it, at least not without major risks of complications, And the malabsorption can cause major nutritional deficiencies unless the patient's diet and supplements are closely monitored. And that's a wrap. Let's recap now to see what you learned about obesity that you can now pass on to your patients. First, can you define obesity and metabolic syndrome? Obesity is classified as excess adipose tissue that leads to increased morbidity and mortality. Practically, it's classified by a body mass index greater than 30 kg per meter squared. Metabolic syndrome is the cluster of metabolic pathology that co-occurs with visceral obesity, insulin resistance, hypertriglyceridemia, low HDL cholesterol, and hypertension. Practically, visceral obesity is approximated by measuring the waist circumference. Second, can you name a medical complication of obesity from at least three different organ systems? The main cause of increased mortality associated with obesity is from atherosclerotic disease, which leads to coronary artery disease, stroke, and peripheral artery disease. The major risk factors associated with those are those associated with metabolic syndrome, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, and atherogenic dyslipidemia. Other common complications include accelerated joint and spine degeneration, sleep apnea and hypoventilation, gastroesophageal reflux, urinary incontinence, and reproductive and sexual dysfunction. Third, can you outline the three main management approaches for obesity? The mainstay of treatment is diet, especially calorie restriction, as well as exercise. Now these often require a great deal of sustained effort and the ability to maintain a sustained lifestyle change is key. Pharmacotherapy can help when diet and exercise alone are insufficient and includes medications like the GLP-1 agonists, Orlistat to block fat digestion, amphetamine-like compounds like Phentramine, and the space occupying hydrogels. Be warned, many of these have significant side effects that you need to monitor for if you're going to put a patient on one of these. Finally, for severe cases of obesity or obesity associated with major medical comorbidities, bariatric surgery may be indicated. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to the patient from the beginning of the episode. A 58-year-old male follows up for a primary care visit shortly after a visit to the emergency department for abdominal pain and appears visibly offended when you address the issue of his weight. How will you productively initiate a conversation on obesity and weight loss? No, no, no. You explain it's not a judgment on your appearance at all. But not all weight gain has an equal effect on your health, and waist measurement is an important medical tool to estimate the most harmful kind of fat, the kind that builds up around your abdominal organs. He reluctantly lets you measure his waist, which comes out to 42 centimeters. You explain to your patient that, given his hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and waist circumference, he meets the criteria for metabolic syndrome. Look, I know there are some people out there that just think of being overweight as a joke. You empathize. Let me assure you, I'm not one of those people. But metabolic syndrome, now that's pretty serious. It's where the fat building up around your organs is quite literally leading to changes in your body chemistry that make things like high blood pressure and cholesterol problems worse. In fact, the abdominal fat putting pressure on your stomach may be even the reason that you're feeling the symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux. When you recommend that the patient cut his caloric intake in half, he laughs and tells you that he's had problems sticking to far easier diets. So you recommend a more modest calorie restriction of 500 kilocals per day and talk to him about foods he likes to eat. Turns out, his wife is Greek and a wonderful cook, and he's interested in trying the Mediterranean diet. Just remember, you tell him, we're trying to figure out an eating plan that'll work for the long term. Let's check in in six months and see how you're doing. If not... We may have other options for you. And that's our show. Sorry this has been noisier than usual. I uh, got a new dog that I'm pretty sure also wants to be a podcast star. (laughs) If you like what you heard anyway, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends.